politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew for our liberties here at home where we need to fight for them. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house today, Tuesday. It is July 13th. And focus, folks, we need to focus, focus domestically and where it matters. I'm seeing all these conservative commentators that really didn't care much about COVID fascism when it mattered. And it's worse now than ever in many respects, but they're very concerned with Cuba. And as I've said before, I I think it's a great thing if they could fight for freedom there, but don't we need to first fight for it here? Do they not recognize that we are not a free people or is life still too comfortable? Is it still too comfortable? That's the question. What is going on when you have in this country, the Biden administration, Politico, leaked this yesterday, working with SMS providers to monitor text messages of people putting out, quote, misinformation, unquote, about the jabs. We no longer have a free country. And particularly regarding something so dangerous like that, What are they hiding? What are they hiding? Especially now that they have 90% of seniors vaccinated, why would you even care if it had any inkling to do with genuine concern for public health? You know, this guy uh, on on Twitter pointed out, Professor Balu in, in England, there's something slightly paradoxical about the UK government with the probably the strongest authoritarian tendencies in my lifetime getting widely blasted for trying to give back some agency to the population. People are upset that there's going to be more freedom there. They have this Freedom Day, was it July 19th? They're debating whether to push it back to end the lockdowns. And that's really the story of Western civilization this past year. We talk about Oh, those people finally rising up in Cuba. Well, when are we going to rise up in these Western countries? And fortunately, in America, it's easier where you have a federalist system. You have autonomous governments in 50 different states and a number of different counties. Everyone's talking about Texas. You know, the Democrats ran away to deny Republicans the quorum to pass uh, voter integrity, integrity laws. But what's funny is there's about 19 states where Republicans have supermajorities, where they don't even need the Democrats to exist for a quorum and could pass anything they want, but they don't. And we need to fight back against the vaccines in the legislatures. We need to fight back against crime, illegal immigration, the other COVID fascism. And I don't want to hear this business, Daniel, a private organization could do anything they want. Now that you see that they are working with government to stifle speech and put out misinformation, and that's what's driving it, and it's being funded by taxpayer dollars. Give me a break. But that's the excuse from a lot of these so-called conservatives in these legislatures with the mass mandates, vaccine mandates, all their private nonsense. They don't understand the Constitution. But if you want to understand the Constitution, I need you guys to go to constitutioncoach.com and sign up for the next Handgun Defense and Constitution Training in Front Sight, Nevada with my buddy Rick Green of Patriot Academy, constitutioncoach.com. As many of you have met me in some of our spring get-togethers at Front Sight, they have the best 
four-day and two-day handgun training you will ever get. Uh, you know who you are, those of you who think you know how to use a handgun. You can seal carry, and that's great, but you really do need to know, especially in the era we live in, how to protect yourself during the day. Um, we have full-day handgun training at night. We study the Constitution, and this is where we're going to really meet to formulate some of our strike force teams that we need badly um and i'm going to explain why in a minute but again we have september october december trips go to constitutioncoach.com check out the dates there i should be at the october 31st training if you want to meet me there um 90 off folks you are missing the opportunity of a lifetime and I promise you it will be cooler than it is there now, which is why we don't do it during the summer. So, again, constitutioncoach.com, never go without training. Um, one of the points I want to make before I just get back to vaccines and possibly if we have time, a special guest today, is my concern I articulated to many of you about four years ago, and I said, look, I saw the writing on the wall in 2018 with the election that Trump was going to lose. And I felt he was going to lose. Let's put the voter fraud on a shelf for a moment. And I said to myself, look, at some point, we're going to have to stop with the morphine, the distractions, the false idols, and get together at a local level and focus, focus, focus on the issues that matter, when they matter, how they matter, with a great degree of specificity of what we're demanding, and either force a convert-or-die dynamic on these Republicans. So either they're forced into our position, or they are marked with defeat. And it was clear to me that Look, the Democrats are more radical than ever. Self-awareness is dead to them. So they're going to think that the populace supports all their radical stuff. They're going to go pedal to the metal. But really, with Trump kind of on the sidelines now, uh, you know, he's no longer there as the bogeyman, we are poised to do very well in the next election. But I warned you, I said, look, it's going to be a repeat of 2010, of the Tea Party, where it's very easy when Republicans are out of power, at least at a federal level, to co-opt our talking points very broadly. They're doing this with critical race theory now. Everyone's united, except they're not. They broadly co-opt, oh, don't defund the police. Don't teach critical race theory. But it really, that's just a sliver of the issue. And if you don't lay down very specific markers, they're going to all run for office, run ads saying, I'm a Christian, I'm pro-life, I'm pro-gun, I hate critical race theory, don't defund the police, we hate socialism. And, and none of us disagree with any of that, that sounds great. And rinse and repeat, you get the same garbage Republicans that get in and we repeat the same cycle that they don't do anything with the power they get. Again, obviously, even if they got control of both houses of Congress, we, we know they'll say, oh, the budget bills, we, we can't have a government shutdown. Uh, Biden's president, we have to wait until we're president. And then they'll get the trifecta again and do nothing with it. But more importantly, they already have a number of trifectas, and they're poised to pick up more next year. They will. What are they doing with it? This is why I need you to sign up for, for Constitution Action Com, I really need people willing to be team leaders in these states. Otherwise, it's going to get co-opted. We need a very specific agenda, very specific legislation to rally behind. 
Three strikes and you're out. Locking up people pre-trial. Making it harder for them to plead down. The things that actually are causing the crime bubble, not this broad whatever. Or like, oh, I'm banning critical race theory. Well, I mean, we have so much momentum behind that in these red states. That should be a no-brainer. But you have to make sure it doesn't get co-opted into very weak sauce. We have to have very strong bills. Because what very strong bills does is one of two things. Either it ensures we get the policy outcome, not just a stupid ephemeral talking point. Or it forces the people that don't really support us to be like, oh man, we can't go that hardcore. And they start opposing it. And then it's easier to defeat them. The worst is when we allow them to co-opt our talking points into fake legislation and fake uh, rhetorical you know, talking points and political ads. And we get nothing for it. So this is a very important thing. But folks, we have a third world country. We are Cuba. We're Cuba with the crime. We're Cuba with the forced vaccination and masking. We're Cuba now with inflation. Oh, my gosh. Inflation numbers came out. It turns out that it's been up 3.9% since Biden took office. That's an annualized rate, if you would you know, pace it out for 12 months, of almost 10% inflation for a year. If you bought a two-year treasury note June of last year at a yield of 0.15%, you lost five and a quarter percent of your purchasing power in one year. But again, and again, I mean, I say June of last year, this did not start with Biden. He stepped on the gas pedal, didn't start with him. Every one of these Republicans went along with funding COVID fascism, COVID bankruptcy, and yes, as one listener puts it, critical COVID theory. That's really, we're all suspect. Like, you know, critical race theory. Every white person is a, Suspected racist, we're all suspected of transmitting disease unless we do what they say. Every Republican bought into critical COVID theory. That was our you know, discussion yesterday. So I want to get back a little bit to the vaccines. What we have going on here. Watch them approve fully these vaccines without batting an eyelash. Our biggest talking point we have left is that their emergency use authorization. You know what they're going to do? They'll just approve them. <laughs> They'll just they don't care. That's how corrupt it is. There was a fascinating article yesterday in the hill.com about Fauci and Burks corresponding in in emails warning how dangerous Dr. Scott Atlas was. By the way, he was first introduced on Steve and uh, Steve's show and then my show before he became famous and eventually worked in the Trump administration. And they noted that this guy's dangerous because he knows how to read the literature and communicate it to people. And I felt that was such a candid moment from Fauci because it's so true. The literature is all out there on this stuff. Here's where we're at with the vaccines now. They're scaring us with two things. Delta. And we're only at the fourth, fifth letter of the Greek alphabet. So there's many more to go. So they could keep this going. And you better get vaccinated. And the two are contradicting each other. Because they're saying that the Delta is not working against the vaccine. That's what this whole panic in Israel is about. And therefore you have to get vaccinated. Like, huh, what? And really what's happening is 
that the delta is now proven to be, and it's not delta, it will be epsilon, it will be all of them. It mutates down. It becomes more transmissible, which means to the extent there was some efficacy of the vaccines, it's going to break through it more. Just like a cold would break through it because you don't have immunity against the cold. But the good news is it's a cold. The case fatality rate is a fraction of the other ones. I mean, this is UK data. So you're going to hear panic about cases and breakthrough. Mind you, not of natural infection so far, but of the vaccine. And they're like, hey, you better lock down. I'm like, wait a minute. You're promoting the wrong thing and then panicking over the failure of your own mandate. The only thing you can do is treatment. Before we delve into that, just one more ad that's very important. Very, very important. I stand behind this product very much. I used to think that laser targets, laser bullets was kind of a gimmick. Then the price of ammo went up like 500%. And I started using it. And I was like, wow, this is really good. iTarget offers you know, what really law enforcement train with. You put a little uh, laser bullet in your gun. Obviously, you clear it of any ammo. Double check, triple check, mag check, chamber check. You put it in. And they have an app, a propriety app from iTarget Pro, where you could shine your phone on the target they give you. You put the laser bullet in the pistol, you get your holster out, and you could at it times and tracks. It renders your shots on on their target, and you it, it has been so accurate. It really picks up where I'm holding my skill level. This is the best way to practice that muscle memory that, you know, wherever you learn how to shoot and those of you who come out to front sight, you're going to forget it quickly if you don't practice. The five-point draw out of the holster, time shots getting quicker. Um, you could do everything except for, you know, you know, controlled pairs. You can only shoot one shot at a time before you have to rack the slide back. But at least with that one shot, you get a full experience. It literally pays with itself, pays for itself after one time. Um, very cheap. You can get 10% off plus free shipping. Very important with offer code CR at the checkout when you go to itargetpro.com. Again, it's the smartest way and the cheapest way to keep yourself in practice so you're prepared when one of the BLM folks attacks you or the jailbreak folks. That's letter I, targetpro.com, itargetpro.com, offer code CR. Now, folks, I wanted to read to you from, this is from Israel, where they're having all this panic. So Israel did lockdowns and masks better than everyone, and it failed. Then they did vaccines better than everyone, and it failed. And now they're like, shut up and get a vaccine, and we might have to do more lockdowns. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. But anyway, there's a good article in IsraelNationalNews.com titled Natural Infection or Vaccination, which gives more protection. Coronavirus patients who recovered from the virus were far less likely to become infected during the latest wave of pandemic than people who were vaccinated against COVID, according to numbers presented to the Israeli Health Ministry. Health Ministry data on the wave of COVID outbreaks, which began this May, show that Israelis with immunity from natural infection were far less likely to become infected again in comparison to Israelis who only had immunity via vaccination. More than 7,700 new cases of the virus have been detected during the most recent wave, but just 72 of the confirmed cases were people um, who are known to be infected, well under 1%. Roughly 40% of new cases, more than 3,000, involved people who had been infected despite being vaccinated. So um, 
with a total of 835,000 Israelis known to have recovered from the virus. Obviously, it's a lot more than 835,000, but those are the known cases. The reinfection rate is 0.0086%. And again, I'll, I'll bet you anything almost to a person, those 72 are extremely mild, asymptomatic, and whatever, not dangerous. Um, by contrast, Israelis who are vaccinated were 6.72 times more likely to get infected after the shot than after natural infection. Um, so that was presented at some sort of hearing in Israel. So this is Israel, the gra ground zero for the vaccine. And now they're saying, oh, well, they're walking it back. The one thing that has never gotten dinged by any of the literature and real-life data is natural infection. So you put this all together, and it tells you this. We've already reached the point in most Western countries where you're not going to have pandemic levels of cases anymore because enough people got it already. To the extent you have more, it's not going to be a pandemic level. To the extent you're going to have more, none of what they've been doing works now by their own admission, including the vaccine. To the extent we've been vaccinated, it's been the vulnerable people anyway. So what you're going to have now is a more transmissible, less deadly version of something that is primarily going to target those that were neither infected or, or vaccinated, which are going to be younger people. So what are we panicking over? And the one final ingredient, to the extent there's people you're worried about, it all comes down to treatment. Treatment, treatment, treatment. There's a beautiful article by Edmund Fordham. There's this UK website from England, conservativewoman.co.uk. Edmund Fordham, look it up, scandal of the suppressed case for ivermectin. A while back, I, um, I, I think it was last week, I quoted to you a meta-analysis so it's not just a meta-analysis, it's a meta-analysis of the existing randomized controlled trials. They used the highest standard, a Cochrane standard of research, and it was published in um, the Journal of Therapeutics. So in this article, Edmund Fordham, who was involved in this study, he reveals that the Lancet, originally they wanted to publish it in the Lancet, that's like the big one, and they rejected it. They said, we doubt we don't doubt this is an important paper and would likely be widely taken up. But nonetheless, they say we're not going to do it. They're not going to do it. And they're all bought out. That's why. Because they are all bought out. They know this is the only way forward. They are engaging in genocide. Remember, they are not trying to heal people with the vaccines. Because if they were, it wouldn't. why would they censor something that has so much more research, is so much more effective, and has so many fewer side effects. Moreover, why would you do it on people younger and or previously infected? See, there's one thing if, if you know, we, we knew about the side effects from day one, and we didn't get started, and they were saying, look, you know, there's people 80 years, 80 years old, you got, you're killing people, it's a death sentence, Fauci said. But no, it, the, the side effects didn't come out. They, they were very successful in that rollout. They got 90% of the seniors vaccinated. They got them. What are you complaining about? You got it. You lied. You got your money. You got your control. So many people died that we won't know about because of it. But you got what you wanted. 
So if it's really that effective that you have the right to force it on people, then it's, well, that effective. Then that means that those people should be safe. So what are you panicking about? Younger people? Let them make that choice. But again, why wouldn't you promote this stuff like ivermectin? And they made them jump through a bunch of hoops. They fixed stuff. They said, okay, we'll do this, do that. This went on for months. And they basically just said, eh, we're not publishing it, even though it's good. We played by their rules. You want a strict meta-analysis of RCTs only? Blinded, double-blinded, randomized controlled trials. That's the gold standard. They did two, two, they, they analyzed two dozen of them. And they say it's not enough. So I'm just reading here from Edmund... Uh, um, how many How many do they need? When governments or regulatory agencies want to approve medicines, one will do. Dexamethasone, a huge fanfare, was approved last summer on the evidence of just one RCT, though it helps only ventilated patients in the inflammatory stages of the illness and on its own by not very much. The FLCCC doctors, that's uh, Pierre Corey's outlet, had been using a, a different uh, corticosteroid uh, methylprednisone and at a higher equivalent doses long before in our, in our analysis, ivermectin reduces deaths overall by around 62% and works at all stages of the disease. But here's the kicker, 62%, that's, that's a strong number. I mean, again, it's not 100%. We don't have anything that is. But as a prophylactic, it prevents six out of every seven infections that would otherwise occur and stops household transmission in its tracks. Corticosteroids are vital in the inflammatory phase of the illness, but are useless in the purely viral stage or, or for uh, prophylaxis. And he goes through the history of ivermectin and the insanity of them trying to prevent its use. And it just, it's, it's just shocking. It is shocking what is going on. And again, you know, some people, you know, some people want a cure. Well, first of all, I'll take 62% versus zero treatment. But also remember... It's not a matter of any one drug. There's budesonide and colchicine and all sorts of things that, that's beyond my pay grade. But for the trillions of dollars we've spent, a handful of physicians with no budget discovered this stuff. You could imagine what we could have come up with. We could have streamlined at this point a situation if you really are worried about the Delta, even though it's less deadly, not more, it's less. And you yourself are saying nothing worked. By definition, with, with the whole mutation thing, the variant thing, if they're right, what they're saying is blatantly that lockdowns, masks, and the vaccines didn't work. Only thing you can do is freaking treat it. Every primary care physician should have a modus operandi. A modus operandi on how to treat this. You have a patient load of 500 patients in your practice. By now, months into this, they should have reached out to every one of them. Hey, you have this status. I think you should prophylax. You don't need to prophylax, but here's, call me, first sign of trouble. Every state, they're, they're, they're testing the hell out of this. right? They're, this is not a pandemic level. The testing should be over with, no matter what. But if you're going to do the testing, the one advantage of it is you should have stationed at all those locations people giving out prescriptions. Instead, they go home isolate. Okay, but then what do I do? Shut up. Wear a mask. Okay, but then what do I do? If you can't breathe, go to the hospital. What type of crap is that 17 months into this? That's utter nonsense. 
That is the biggest proof that what they're doing with the vaccines, as with masking and lockdowns, is not misguided or dumb, puerile, um, and even just tyrannical. It's genocide. Because the most promising aspect of, again, not just treating it, because if you take pro, right, the, the beauty of this is what's become clear is the strongest thing. This is incontrovertible from all the literature. The strongest thing is prior infection. That's how to end it. Now, obviously, there's some people you don't want to get it or you don't want to. I mean, because because they could get it badly and they could die from it. So the best thing you can do is when they get it naturally, ensure that right away it's treated. I mean, even the monoclonal antibodies, which is created by some facet of pharma, it's like they're dead silent about it. When do you ever hear that being promoted anywhere? A lot of people don't even know about it. And again, to me, that's not even the best thing. But but that's like a big pharma thing, and it is expensive. So you'd think they could promote that, right? No, they don't. Truly, truly unbelievable. Now, folks, before I get carried away today, I do plan to get back to some of our other themes tomorrow, but I want to dedicate the rest of today's show to more of an in-depth discussion about the cost-benefit analysis of what we're seeing with this vaccine relative to others, as well as just the, the violation of precedent that we've experienced over the years with other vaccines that after a certain threshold of adverse events, we yanked the vaccine. And now rather than yanking it, we're doubling down, even though the cost and benefit has already been sunk in the population that really needs it. And you're only really dealing with the population for the most part that really doesn't. It is, you know, so we're going to bring on our special guest. I just want to make one more point before we bring on Dr. Strickler, um, you know, a friend of mine put out a scatter diagram of European countries and basically juxtaposed the COVID case rates to the, you know, cases per million to percent vaccinated. Okay, percent vaccinated. And what was shocking is that there's zero correlation, so the R squared is like in reverse. If anything, it's a little bit reverse that for the most part, the countries like the UK, then and now we see Israel, it's not Europe, it wasn't on this diagram, but the countries that that you know had all these vaccines appear to have slightly more cases. You know, there's there's variations here and there. But we certainly are seeing that, for the most part, the Eastern European countries have very, very low vaccination rates. I'm talking about often single digits, um, and they have much fewer cases than, you know, the Netherlands and Spain and France and, and certainly the UK. So when you see something like that, wouldn't it give you pause? So with us today, we've had a lot of specialists. But today's guest, very interesting, Dr. Raphael Stricker, he's an internist in San Francisco. He's the medical director of Union Square Medical Associates, a multi-specialty practice. So he kind of sees sees it all. But his real specialty is tick-borne diseases, Lyme disease, although he's authored many, many uh, uh, articles in medical journals about 
um, immunodeficiency, um, immunologic infertility, um, coagulation disorders. So a lot of different things that tie into both viruses as well as some of the concerns we have about the vaccination. So I figured, you, you know, Dr. Peter McCullough recommended him as a top guest. So I had said, look, I got to jump on this. And thankfully, we got him available from his busy schedule. Dr. Stricker, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be here. So obviously, I was very intrigued when I saw this, uh, you know, some of your writings on coagulation disorders. And then I saw you've written uh, articles on Lyme disease vaccines. It was a failed vaccine there. So I was like, man, I have so much to discuss with you. But I want to start from the basics. Um, Last week, we saw a big jump in the number of uh, vaccine-related deaths reported on VIRS. It jumped from about 7,000 to 9,000 in one week. Doesn't mean they were all that week, but at least the reporting. And the other side will say, look, well, a lot of the same things that you're saying could happen from the vaccine, well, that's COVID could do that to you. COVID could do, you know, um, the myocarditis and the blood problems. So we need this to prevent COVID. And at the end of the day, the numbers are still low um, while they're high historically, but the denominator is so large, so it's such a small percentage. So it's still better that people um, take away the risk from COVID. What would you say to those people? Well, that's certainly one way of looking at it, that the risk of these vaccines is very low compared to the number of doses given. But the other way to look at it is that if you're one of those 9,000 people who had a serious adverse event with this vaccine, then it doesn't really matter what the statistics are. It's a terrible thing to happen. And I think that traditionally with vaccines, you know, the government agencies have have erred on the side of, you know, avoiding complications. And and in this case, unfortunately, I think that's not true. Uh, and I think it's partly because of fear. I mean, people are very afraid of this virus, and therefore they're willing to accept certain risks that normally they wouldn't accept with with a vaccine. And also um, uh, the perception that there's no alternative. I mean, your only option is to get this vaccine. That's the only way to protect you against COVID. And that perception has really clouded people's judgment on on the dangers of these vaccines. Sure. So there's really two violations of the EUA statute. Number one is the government has to give it informed consent that there are no other treatments, which, as we noted at the top of the hour today, uh, we, we talked at great length about the censorship of ivermectin and other early and prophylactic uh, treatments that have really good data behind them. Um, the Lancet refused to publish the, the largest meta-analysis of RCTs on on ivermectin. And then obviously the other end, which is the risk-benefit analysis, just to um, it has to outweigh the 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 cost, and certainly in children, um, we've proven mathematically that even if you trust their data, um, it outweighs the chance of dying from COVID. Um, but I wanted to talk about some of that. What you just brought up historically, we're very we're very um very much inclined to err on the side of caution, and we certainly see that. Um, we see that in experimental drugs all the time. Sometimes you'll have people dying of cancer, and it's so hard to get things approved. We're always very careful with experimental things, even when we don't see any smoke. And here we certainly see a lot of smoke and a little bit of fire, a tip of the iceberg of these heart problems. So my question to you is, 
you look, I just, someone sent me a New York Times article from, what is this, 1976, October 13th, swine flu program is halted in nine states as three die after shots, three people. Um, could you talk a little bit about your experience in the field of of tick-borne diseases when, you know, Lyme disease is a serious problem. Um, both my older boys got it when we went in the forest a couple of summers, and luckily it was caught early. Um, it could be pretty serious. So they tried to develop a vaccine. Could you speak a little bit about the threshold that triggered them to yank it? Sure, and, and actually I'm old enough to remember the swine flu vaccine uh, <laughs> catastrophe. And uh, what happened there was that there were over 500 cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome, this neurological complication, in people who got the swine flu vaccine. And that's really what terminated the program. Uh, but there, the difference is there really weren't that many cases of swine flu. So it wasn't that big a deal. Now, with Lyme disease, there was a vaccine for Lyme disease that came on the market in 1998. It was taken off the market in 2002. Uh, ostensibly because of poor sales. But the truth is there was a class action lawsuit by about 400 patients who claimed that the vaccine gave them something that looked like Lyme disease. So they actually kind of got Lyme disease from the vaccine. And the company withdrew the vaccine to avoid uh, litigation, basically. And there has not been a, a, a new vaccine for Lyme disease since then. Now, that vaccine worked by a slightly different mechanism. It was basically a protein a piece of the Lyme bacteria uh, that supposedly uh, went into ticks when they bite you and caused a reaction that neutralized the, 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 the Lyme bacteria. So it's a slightly different mechanism, but in fact, uh, it is exposure to a protein that can be very uh, toxic uh, in people and does cause a lot of symptoms in humans. And so in that sense, it's a little bit like the, the coronavirus vaccine. Uh, which mm. do sort of the same thing. Because that, that's what caught my eye. In my own layman eye, I read that, um, you know, because when I saw that was your specialty, and I've been going through some of the failed uh, vaccines, and I said to myself, wait a minute, I, that's not a spike protein, but that sounds a little bit like the same concept. Rather than taking something that's completely inert, you're taking a real, you know, protein and there were cases where it appeared they were getting some of the serious symptoms that people who get a serious case of Lyme disease get. And I was like, wait a minute, isn't that kind of what we're dealing with, with with the spike protein here where we don't know where it deposits in the body, how long it lasts, and we're seeing some of the um, heart issues and the blood circulation issues that seem to arise from serious COVID cases now occurring in those who are vaccinated. So could you talk about some of the coagulation issues we're seeing? Um, and then also, if you could speak a little bit about the difference between, and we, we've talked a lot about the, the platform difference between J&J &J and the mRNA, but why does it appear that the government is more trigger happy to talk down J&J &J while broadly talking up the vaccine? Well, I'm not sure there's a huge difference. I mean, there was just a, an article that came out from Scandinavia about the AstraZeneca vaccine, the fourth one that wasn't approved because of all the clotting issues with that vaccine. They showed that there was double the risk of, of uh, venous clotting with that vaccine and 20 times the risk of clotting in the brain 
uh, with the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is similar to the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. So I think that's why there's more scrutiny now of that type of vaccine. It is a protein based vaccine. Uh, the mRNA vaccines, uh, Pfizer and Moderna, are a novel technology. It's really a very experimental kind of treatment type of vaccine. It's never really been used before in humans. So, again, this is one huge you know, human experiment with these RNA vaccines. And the problem is that what they do is they, they induce the body to make this protein, the spike protein, and it's made by a lot of different cells in the body, just not just a couple, but basically almost all your cells make this protein. And then your body reacts to the protein, but it may not be able to control the expression of that protein. And I think that's where we get into trouble with these RNA vaccines and why the RNA vaccines are, in a sense, more problematic than the more traditional vaccines. Um, and I guess... Uh, that, that, and, and I guess the government doesn't want to, you know, show that these this novel experimental technology has problems. And that's been their whole, you know, theme with this is to kind of suppress the complications that you see with these vaccines. And there have been quite a few in terms of clotting as well. Uh, in terms of Guillain-Barre syndrome, I was just looking at some data from the, um, the VAERS, you know, the um, adverse events uh, uh, ledger. And there have been a lot of cases of Guillain-Barre, this neurologic disease, uh, in people who got the RNA vaccines as well. So all of that's kind of been swept under the rug because the government doesn't want anybody to read anything bad about these novel vaccines. So, I mean, do you have any reason why they would talk about this nerve syndrome? Yesterday, they, they came out with that warning on J&J, but they won't apply it to the others well, I think they want people to get vaccinated. I think the whole the whole push is vaccine, vaccine, vaccine. I like to call it vaccine mania. That's kind of what we're in, vaccine mania now. You know, mania is not a rational process. It's something that really, you know, doesn't have any rational basis, but, but that's what the government is pushing. And so you don't want to have anything interfere with vaccine mania. And if you start talking about all these side effects, then people aren't going to want the vaccine. So I think that's really what the, you know, what the process is. So I wanted to pick your brain about, you know, the coagulation disorders. And obviously they've been treating everyone, including those that have no prima facie symptoms, as if they're infected. That, that's been the name of the game for, you know, the last 17 months. Everyone is suspect at any given time, even if you already had the infection and had pretty impervious immunity, you're always suspect. Um, you're contaminated. Yet if you get injected with these um with the spike protein, which has turned out to be in some places, places or for some people, clearly um, some activity as a toxin. Um, somehow that's not it's not a problem. My concern to you is, is this. How much are we contaminating the blood supply? I've seen a study out um, suggesting that there were issues with organ donors and almost recommending um, to screen people out for the vaccine in some cases for organ donors, for certain organs, that there's been a problem of almost like transferring those um, blood clotting issues. So then I read that report and I was thinking, well, wait a minute, what's more common than than organ transplants? That's uh, blood infusions. I mean, just the whole blood bank. What 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 is this doing to the blood supply? 
Right. Well, first of all, let me say, uh, you know, first off, that I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I mean, I'm a big believer in vaccines. My kids have all been vaccinated. I've been vaccinated. But I believe but not with the spike protein. Been, right. Well, I, exactly. I, I believe in vaccines that have been uh, vetted and that have been, you know, studied for usually five to 10 years before they're approved. So a spike protein vaccine is a different animal. Um, it's something that's totally experimental. We don't have much data about it. We don't know much about it. And again, the latest um, you know, studies show that it does promote clotting. And it's interesting. There's one theory that there's a piece of the spike protein that looks like snake venom. And snake venom actually causes this excess clotting to the point where you, you deplete all your clotting factors and then you start bleeding. So that's kind of what happens with the spike protein in some individuals. Now, the other problem, though, is that this side effect is completely unpredictable. I mean, one of the real problems with these vaccines is that we don't know who's going to have these bad reactions. There's no way to tell who's going to be fine with the vaccine and who's going to die with the vaccine. So until we know more about that, and usually that kind of you know, research takes years to do. I mean, you can't find that out overnight. Uh, but until we know more about who's going to have bad side effects in terms of clotting, it's very risky for an individual to take these vaccines. Now, again, on a population basis, okay, it's like, you know, one in a in hundred thousand people might have this, but we just don't know who that one person is going to be. And that's what's really scary about these vaccines. And what's scary about who they're going to be is, again, you know, let, let's say they are scary. Well, most seniors got it already. So the cost is sunk and the benefit, whatever may or may not be, is is baked into the cake. What they're viciously, almost very coming, very close to mandating in a lot of places they are, is really younger people. Um, and obviously, those people, the cost-benefit analysis, it makes no sense to risk it. I, 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 one of the things I saw in Veers that really str- uh, struck me, and I wanted to get your take on this. I know you studied infertility. It's one of your areas of interest. And that is, you know, pregnant women, it looks like there were close to a thousand reported miscarriages on Veers. And I said to myself, wait a minute, that's pretty hard to prove. And doctors will be raked over the coals. They have to sign an affidavit, threat of jail time. They know the pressure against saying anything bad about this. So to have that many reported, um, you know, and, and it's not like, you know, the myocarditis is kind of more black and white. I mean, even then it gets a little murky, but this is very hard to prove. It makes you wonder how much else is going on here. I know uh, Dr. McCullough always says they did not study this in the in the animals, the fertility issues. Um, is there is there some smoke there? Well, well, actually, the uh, Moderna vaccine was studied in 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 rats, and and so was the uh, the Pfizer vaccine. <laughs> the results are buried on page fifty of the hundred and sixty nine page review that was published by Moderna. And it shows that there is a decrease in fertility in rats, and rats are the most fertile animals on the planet. And the decrease in fertility was about 16%, which didn't meet their criteria for significant uh, infertility. So therefore, it wasn't really reported. But if you read the report, it does sound like there is some effect on fertility in this animal model. Now, the problem is the vaccines were never really studied in pregnant women. And, you know, pregnant women are a very particular group because, you know, their whole focus is on protecting their their newborn baby. 
So you wouldn't want to do something yeah. to these women that's going to jeopardize their pregnancy. And yet we're being told, based on no human information whatsoever, pretty much, that these vaccines are safe in pregnancy. And I think that's really hard. That's terrible. That's just the terrible thing to do to pregnant women. Um, beyond that, I mean, again, it takes five to 10 years to study these kinds of vaccines in pregnancy. And we just don't have that time and we don't have that, that experience. And we probably won't have that experience before everybody starts, you know, all the government starts recommending it for all pregnant women, which I think would be a, a, a terrible thing to do. And, and, and I'll look, it's etched in anyone who's pregnant, the, their consciousness to always have Tylenol on your shelf and never take ibuprofen. To this day, pregnant right. women don't take ibuprofen. We say it's not approved. And yet they're going to take something like this. And, and what's so um, devastating is that w- when you're talking about a cohort of pregnant women, by definition, you're mainly talking about women in their 20s and 30s. And um, not only are they young, but my understanding from all the data is that to the small extent you ever find younger into middle-aged men who have you know who have issues with the virus, it's more men, not women. So we're talking about 20 to 30 females. Um, really a very low risk category. It's, it's truly shocking that we would shove it on them. Um, but this, this is where we are. Well, yeah. Right. But I think, you know, again, pregnant women of that age are kind of a different group because it has been shown that the COVID has significant, um, side effects with in pregnancy and can cause, you know, significant problems in terms of, um, the, the severity of the disease, uh, loss of the pregnancy, uh, ICU admissions for pregnant women who get the infection. So again, the infection in pregnancy can be a, a very serious problem. And here we get back to the whole idea that, well, what's, you know, what's your choice for preventing or protecting you against COVID? There's only one choice, and that's the vaccine, because there's no other option. And I think that's where the problem is, that all the other options for preventing uh, COVID, such as, for example, hydroxychloroquine, which has been used in pregnant women to prevent malaria for about 70 years, mm. that option just doesn't exist for COVID. And I think that's part of the problem that, that, you know, pregnant women will look at this and go, gee, the only way I can protect myself is with a vaccine. So I guess I may as well get the vaccine and whatever happens, happens. And I think that's a terrible uh, single option for people to have. Sure. No, I mean, that's that's the big that's the biggest scam. And it's the biggest thing that I think none of us could wrap our arms around the very people who are the biggest hawks on covid and are willing to overturn every aspect of society, um, democracy, economy for the virus. The one thing they won't do is treat it and and censoring any treatment. It's not just hydroxy. It's they won't. It's not like, eh, I don't like hydroxy, but I like this or like, you know, you know use uh, colchicine, use that. No, it's it's nothing. It's just right. remdesivir, ventilator. Like th- there's no 17 months later and there's no even desire to study it, to come up with more things. It is truly, truly shocking. One last thing I just wanted to broach with you. Um, so now, you know, the name of the game, everyone's talking about the mutations. Um, it was always thought that with uh, certain respiratory viruses, it's hard to vaccinate against them because they constantly mutate. Um, I remember th- there was this Danish doctor and a lot of people in America that were leery of what we were doing warned that we've never really done mass indiscriminate vaccination during a pandemic while that particular virus was still circulating widely. And they were concerned that 
it would be a self-fulfilling prophecy of creating a natural selection for the mutations. Do you think that's playing out now and kind of ruining the efficacy? Well, I think it, it definitely is. I mean, I think if you look at the mutations, most of them started in places where they were testing the vaccines in 2020. That's where the mutations started. So I think that's definitely promoting these mutations. And of course, the mutations are geared to avoid the vaccines. So you're going to have these problems with mutations that the vaccines don't really protect you against. Now, they may protect you enough to prevent serious disease, which is basically what you want. But, but we don't know that. And, and immunity that you would get from other preventive measures, such as hydroxychloroquine, is probably much, much better because that would cover all mutations, basically, at least in the short term, and prevent you from getting it. And let me say one other thing about hydroxychloroquine. I mean, hydroxychloroquine has been vilified and and, you know, and said, oh, it's such a horrible drug. It causes terrible side effects. It's, it's just something that should never be used. But if you look at the literature on hydroxychloroquine, like I said, it's been used to prevent malaria for 70 years. Uh, it's been used in all different populations. It's not a great drug for treating the infection once you get the infection, but it is a very good drug to prevent infection, especially in groups like pregnant women who actually can't take ivermectin because it's not approved in pregnancy but could mm. take hydroxychloroquine to prevent them from getting the problems with COVID. And that's where, you know, we've sort of really turned a blind eye because, again, in order to get an emergency use authorization for the vaccines, you can't have any other treatment that works. So that's why we don't want any other treatment if you're trying to push the vaccines because that would interfere with everybody getting vaccinated. So we can't look at hydroxychloroquine as a prevention for COVID in pregnant women or other populations because that would interfere with the vaccine drive. And that's really been, been a huge problem. So we have a lot of listeners that really count on getting information because they don't hear it elsewhere. Uh, just between ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, are you saying you'd recommend more hydroxy for prophylaxis, but then once you know you have the virus, more ivermectin or something else? Uh, that's that's exactly right. I mean, hydroxychloroquine really works best as a prevention. Ivermectin probably also works as a prevention, but the problem is we don't know what the best dosing is for prevention. So that's why it's hard to say that's as good as hydroxychloroquine, whereas, mm -hmm. like I said, hydroxychloroquine has been used for decades for you know, prevention of malaria. So we know what the dosing is, is like. Uh, but ivermectin probably does work better as a treatment if you've got, you know, COVID as an early treatment. It, you know, there are lots of studies that show that. And so that would be a better option for, for that situation where you're already infected. And obviously, as always, you know, people need to keep their vitamin levels up, their zinc levels up. Um, <laughs> that's another thing we'll never, right. ever, ever hear anything about. Um, to this day, to this day, people don't even know to get tested. Their vitamin D levels could be in the toilet. They could be single digits. And they had 16 months to to deal with that. And it, very cheap. you know. And right. to this day, it is truly shocking. Um, so many deaths could be prevented. Serious illness from that, as we've noted. Um, Dr. Stricker, thanks so much for your time today. And we really look forward to following your research and having you back in the future. Thank you, Daniel. Pleasure to be here. And again, folks, that was Dr. Raphael Stricker. Um, you know, we're just trying to get diverse, diff diverse, uh, multi multidisciplinary 
um, multi-specialty practices, different people that have different expertise. Let me know if you have any good ideas who you want to hear from. Um, but that's that's what we have to do in this age of censorship. And look, we're gonna have different different you know focuses. Some will you know disagree on finer points. I mean, he seems to really be actually pushing that pregnant women are more at risk. That was not like my understanding of the literature, so I'll have to look into that. Um, but broadly speaking, I mean, this is the big lesson. What actually works, everyone agrees, particularly with hydroxy and ivermectin, they work. Everyone seems to have coalesced around the opinion that vaccinating indiscriminately, even without side effects, just the strategy of vaccinating so many people, especially those that don't need it, will actually help it mutate. The very people that are um, panicking over mutations, over variants, as they like to call it, um, they're actually helping that along with their solution of vaccination. Um, natural immunity covers it all, uh, as well as uh, solid prophylaxis and early treatment covers it all. That is the solution. We've always known that to be true. And and again, ultimately, what this boils down to is a simple, uh, really a simple biblical principle I noted from day one. Um, from Samuel 2, 24, 14, when God wanted to punish King David for a sin, he offered him a choice between three years of famine, three months of pursuit of his enemies, or three days of a plague. And he chose the plague. He, he, he said to Gad, the prophet, he chose the plague, and not because it was just three days. Um, it wasn't the duration. He said, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hands of humans. And it was when you're confronted, if it's a toss-up, yeah, maybe you might have a risk from COVID, but you know you have a risk of the vaccine and a risk of it actually making the proliferation worse. And the, the, the balance has to clearly be indicative that on balance, it's better what you're doing because if it's a toss-up, then I'd rather fall in the hands of God. Don't do something man-made that for sure up front creates problems. That is the biggest principle we've moved away from. Certainly you have permission to engage in medicine and try to do things. But again, it has to be in concert with the Nuremberg Code because otherwise you're ruining God's system for nothing. That, 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 that's the thing. It makes no sense to take people who are rarely at risk and upfront give them this chance of being one of those people that's going to get a risk. And who knows long-term? We don't know about the fertility issues. So this is definitely a big deal. But folks, we need again to push freedom from COVID fascism in the red states. We need to have strike teams in place to push specific things that can't be co-opted. Frankly, most Republicans aren't even trying to co-opt. Uh, critical COVID theory like they are with critical race theory and you know funding the police so it's pretty easy to snuff them out they're all on the other side they're all on the take from Big Pharma folks we are in the battle of a lifetime against Big Pharma till tomorrow God bless y'all and thank you for listening